You're listening to the Attributive Security Podcast, where we discuss and share ideas relating to information security. My name is Martin, and today Maurice and I are discussing certifications. General profession, role-specific, vendor, whatever. Keep listening to hear our views and some questions we raise, then join the conversation with your views and responses. So you said, uh, you know, I was thinking about the certifications in our industry. And of course, I had to look up what is out there and what is popular. It's quite... Oh, there's a, there is a huge amount. There's loads there. I also checked the difference between what is what was popular in 2019 and what is popular now. Not much difference there. It's the, the, the main focus keeps being CISM, Certified Ethical Hacker, CISA. Yeah, I've just pulled up... Um... Paul Jeremy's chart, I don't know if you've seen it, of all the uh, cyber qualifications. It's just like filling my, my monitor. There's a lot of soup there. Yes, there is. I think I've seen this also on, on Reddit. Yeah, it got shared around, but it, it's, it's still being updated. If you just go to the site, let me see if I can share that with no, you. No, I have it here. Who in their right mind can get their head around that? What I see a lot, certainly, is if you talk to hiring managers, I've been a hiring manager and I've seen a number of talks and presentations around this area and, you know, our skills gap and are we hiring, trying to hire unicorns? And you talk to the hiring managers and they, they really prioritize experience. You know, they really want people to have experience and then they gate their selection on, well, you've got to have these certifications and, and some of them are just nonsensical. You've got to have a CISP to apply for a job as a pen tester. Yeah. So you you get that sort of thing, and then I'm sure we we know people who don't have qualifications, who are really good at their job. You know, they're really good at what they do, but they don't have the qualification. Yep. Equally, I'm sure you know of people who have the full alphabet soup and have lots of qualifications. And in private, at least your your comment would be, well, you know, they're not all that. They're not the the first person I, I would turn to. Unfortunately, that is correct. Yes. So what value are the certifications really providing in that sense if they're not a good indicator, a good reflection of, of how good somebody is, of how capable somebody is? What could help there is the different levels in certifications, right? You, you could just have gained some knowledge. You've been able to cram the theory and then drive up to the exam location on a Saturday morning, dump your memory, and you have proven to uh, be able to memorize stuff, but not... Go out for a beer on the Saturday night and forget it all by the Sunday. kill all those brain cells co collecting, right, that collected the knowledge there and forgetting everything. Oh, you've got to celebrate. You've just done a certification. Oh, true. Right? Absolutely. What well, we need to celebrate more in life, right? And even the small things. So I, I, I truly think that levels would help uh, in certifications there. If somebody is CISP certified, it only proves that he's that this person and I'm not I'm not against CISP, but if somebody is CISP certified no, in general, a lot of things you can say about, you know, IC squared or ISACA or no, of course, which, whichever of course. Uh, body that I don't I don't want to get into uh dumping on on a particular uh, body no 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 indeed um what and 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 sis started ic square started doing this right by having more specialized courses after sis yep. proving indeed that okay so you are sort of foundation certified you have your four years of qualified work in in the areas required okay so you make a good point there and again i sack a same page there you take the exam but you also have to 
to have the experience. You maybe have to have some already qualified people to support your application to have that accreditation. Yeah. Um, so it's not it's not all down to the exam, at least in it, with some of the some of the bodies. And there's there's um, to remain certified. I'm not always convinced that providing CPE is actually what we should be looking for. Okay, let's get this straight. Continuing personal development, CPD, whatever you want to call yes. it, is absolutely vital. We're in such a fast-moving industry. Yes. You've got to be keeping up. That's, I think that's a given. I think it's, I guess it's good that some of these certification companies are trying to reflect that. I think they struggle. And, you know, this is certainly the case with academic courses as well. They sometimes struggle to actually keep up. If if I go and do a certification now, am I actually being tested on the knowledge that I should have had five years ago? Or maybe it's only three yeah. years. Um, so there's a struggle for the for them to keep up with the technologies and the, the change within the industry. How do you actually go about maintaining that certification? If you look at something like a Christ exam, they actually make you reset the exams every three years. You don't have the, the same oh, well, I can go to a conference, I can sit in the bar, I can register my CPEs. Right. And right. I didn't actually learn anything. But And yeah, you, you know, to get your CPEs, you should have been in the room. But you know, it, it's so hard to actually... And even if you're in the room, are you really reading social media on your phone? How, how far can you take it reasonably as a training provider offering CPEs that the people are actually taking in some information? So I, I agree. I, th- I think that's not necessarily the best way to do things but i'm not sure there's a better way other than maybe resetting exams resetting an exam or you could have a uh, not a full exam but a different type of questionnaire a different approach yeah but another assessment point yes yes so you've been through this conference what were the key takeaways of that conference and here are 10 questions. Maybe, right? I'm not suggesting, I'm not saying this should be done, but if somebody is, I mean, when I started in IT with obtaining certificates or a, I, I, I needed certificates, I started with my first Cisco. Okay, so vendor certifications, that's another. Yeah, that was a vendor's. Another home. Yes, but required for the job. Who is that serving? The vendor's actually getting revenue for doing that, right? Yeah. So they, they're getting some, some benefit from it. And also, I guess, they're getting general awareness of, of, of their product and, and how to use it is going to increase. What value does the individual get? The individual, I guess, gets to apply for a job. But going back to the earlier point, it, it doesn't necessarily actually say that you're competent. You know, it's not actually that good an indicator of how good you can... You were able to answer some questions on how to configure a router three years ago one day, one point in time. Does it really serve the the employer? They're, if, if they're actually turning away potentially good candidates without an interview, without a conversation, just because fail at the first hurdle because, you know, their application doesn't have the right acronyms on it. Yeah, true, that's true. And this could also happen that while you are already on the job, suddenly there's new sort of new regulation where they're saying you need to be certified for this, go get your certificate and then you fail. But you keep the system up and running for years because you know everything, but you don't speak the vendor's language. And how many of those employers who require a certification actually care? You know, So they require the certification on your application. You get in, the field's moving, 
maybe some new routers come out or some new firewalls and or they, they, they get new features. Are they actually paying for you to go and do that exam? They care that you're competent in doing the job. How many of them actually care that you then actually maintain that qualification once you've got in the door? So is it is it then on the on the, the individual to fund that? No, well, that's an interesting. I, I mean, if you set that as a requirement to apply for the job, then as an employer, you should keep keep that up, I would say. Yeah. Otherwise, on the one hand, you're saying it's vital that you can do this. And on the other hand, you're saying, well, actually, no, if you can do the job, but you <laughs> yeah. don't need the piece of paper. Yeah, right. Uh, I want you to be able to do this. You need to be certified, but actually, I don't care. So therefore, I'm not paying for your for your annual maintenance fees there. And going on from that, what I mean, one thing I, I, I don't know a lot about, so I'd really be kind of interested in anything you know or or anything our listeners know. How many of these certification boards are actually out there trying to facilitate disadvantaged people coming from different places? Because we say we've got a skills gap. We say we want diversity. But some of these certifications actually cost quite a lot of money. Oh, yeah. And some of them are actually tied to training courses as well. So you're talking thousands of thousands of pounds. And that's quite a barrier to entry if, if you don't have that money. Now, you know, I hope that some of these well-established certification companies are actually thinking about that. And they're looking at ways to facilitate entry into that for more disadvantaged people. You mean the certification bodies or the employers? I think both. Both, yeah. Well, there might, there might be some sort of without... I mean, maybe there could be some sort of a an entry level fee but then again that would be open to fraud isn't it but yeah i mean it's it, it's thousands and thousands of whatever currency you you're in dollars you know, if you've got to go and do if you've got to do a, a GAC course in forensics or something to get into that field and you know you're looking at you know, six thousand dollars for a sans course or something i have to be honest there i was indeed this summer uh, looking for it i'm here at home let me see if i can up my certificates there and see if I can do a yeah. few more but whoa that was beyond my budget so I started building a pool instead of getting certified for <laughs> <laughs> but yeah um so you're getting experience real life experience in something yes I'm now a certified uh am- certified amateur plunge pool maker plunge yes yes mini plunge it's not opened yet you're holding off for the uh lockdown to see so you can have an opening party yes. what's the opposite of lockdown indeed <laughs> <laughs> when you look at the certifications there's also different types of certifications and some of those pretend to be a part of that group that category which they aren't but that that is probably my normal rent on architecture that a lot of many people say that they are an architect but they are not a real architect they are engineer they're an analyst they are but that is just how the profession evolved where people started saying i'm an application architect i am a network architect i mean there's a redhead certified architect yeah are you architecting redhead as in doing contextual and conceptual layers of redhead or is this about the configuration of multiple devices or maybe even one but you're able to design configure the redhead machine I think it's generally more than one machine. It's around having networks of components. But yeah, I mean, architect is a is a word that's poorly used. Where I guess I thought you were maybe going is the differences in some of the certifications. So we talked about certifications that require you to have, I'd hesitate to say just demonstrable experience. I think maybe some of the requirements are, are a bit easier to, to meet. You've just got to have been in a job and that doesn't necessarily mean you've gained experience or that sort of thing 
but you look at some of the certifications, some of them are you go and do a, a written exam or maybe it's even a multiple choice exam. And some of them, like, I guess I'm thinking of offensive security exams are like 24, 48 hours in a virtual lab, hacking away, doing some exploit writing, whatever. You've actually got to demonstrate practitioner level skills. You've got, you've, you've got to do the thing. And under reasonable, reasonably reflective conditions, I guess, cramming for 48 hours, hacking away with, with the uh, coffee injections is probably not, not all that much real world. But you've got those, those different levels of, of what you're assessing. Are you assessing knowledge? Are you assessing the ability to configure something? Or are you actually assessing the ability to be able to re- react to a changing landscape in the sense of some sort of incident response type simulation you're not actually in control of of the whole scenario right yeah so you've actually got to be able to jump in and perform that's maybe another another factor to look at so that's gonna differentiate between some of these certifications on this this massive grid that we were talking about earlier on yeah so there's like you were saying there's knowledge and skills yeah so you can obtain the knowledge but do you have the skills to actually use that knowledge in different scenarios and I think you can only prove that by by being on the job, having a network around you of people who can testify for you being able to do all of that, what you're supposed to be doing. Maybe that's another thing there, that we, um, on top of the uh, reassessment on your knowledge or skills, that we could also, or should maybe better, lean on your peers, your network. So that brings me into something else. So we... For a long time, had the um, the Institute of Information Security Professionals in the UK. It's now a chartered institute. I'm still seeing a lot of you've got to have a CISP or a CISM to do this job, and whether or not that's applicable. They're not saying you've got to be a, a member of the professional institute. And to get that membership, you've got to document various experience. You've got to be supported by existing members. You've you've got to have interviews. You're talking about being endorsed the reflections of your network yeah. is is that not a more valuable thing than being being a member of that group and in good standing in that group than having a piece of paper that says i took this exam yes I, and maybe there could be something overarching or for a group so there's a group of architects that can say well this is a good togev architect he's a good saps architect he's a good zachman uh, but you know if you need if you need somebody qualified for this, then he is the person or he is one of the people that you could hire because he he is endorsed by his peers. When it comes to networks, configurations, vendor specific or not, not. Yeah, maybe this is something. International bodies, but that of course would require regulations on those bodies. International bodies is, is probably harder than national bodies. Uh, yeah. Okay, maybe start local then, national bodies. I think potentially in narrower fields like as you say if you want to be uh, known as being a good togaf architect then maybe that is a open group type initiative to say well this this person's within a you know architect community and they're in good standing and yes we're not actually going to certify that we think they're uh, they're really good but you know that they they're doing the right sort of things they're participating in the right sort of industry conversations and not showing themselves up to be a, a know-nothing. But then I guess you, you start looking at, well, how does that pan out? And you then start having local chapters. Yep. So it doesn't have to be a, how, how many people are, are part of a, a local chapter of, of something versus 
really actually having a a name and a presence on the world stage. What I was saying, suggesting is maybe this 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 body you're adding that the national body. But I was thinking also, so if I would like to know whether there's like you were saying, Togaf architect is a good architect. That wouldn't necessarily only be on the the knowledge and the skills of using that the the methods in there. But of course there's also this this additional thing, is he a nice person? What what's his personality? Yeah. If you want to hire somebody to be an architect, they, they're going to have to be able to build working relationships, build those networks within your company. So you're going to need those skills. How you assess those throughout your selection process may differ. I don't think you have to say, well, is he capable of doing this facet of the job? Let's say the, the technical side of the job right. or the, yeah. the information security domain part of the job has to be evidenced in the same manner as is he a nice person or is he a good person who can build those those relationships and have those conversations and influence people across the business that's a a different facet that you're maybe gonna assess in a different completely different way that's true that's true a national body it got me thinking right would there be a need for a national body that overarches CISSP people, CISM people, CISA people, right? So it's a sort of a collection, a category. So you could have an overarching body, a national body of architects, a national body of security engineers or uh, hackers or... And then I was thinking, but all the CISSP and CISM, CISM, aren't necessarily the same. No. So maybe CISM would fit more within a group of CISO-alike courses or certifications yeah so actually a question to the audience to the question to our listeners would be what do you think a national body on top of certifications or group of certifications i'd be really interested what other people think about this to have more assurance basically of when you hire a cissp or any other certified person that he is indeed that he's entitled to really use that certificate saying yes he is qualified yeah i think you need to consider what skills you're looking for a cissp and we keep coming back to that one for some reason if you want somebody who's going to get involved in your software development life cycle and putting security in maybe some devops that sort of stuff you want a cssLP not a cissp right right yeah so the fact that they're a member of good standing of isc squared doesn't mean that they're they're qualified in the niche of of our industry that you're interested in so i guess there's that there's that question as well you either you either go if you go to a a national institute a chartered institute like we've got then yes that's i, I think that's an indication of, of of certainly some breadth but it's not necessarily going to show that you're a specialist in a certain area it it shows that you're a uh, respected or worthy of respect maybe within within the industry but it doesn't make doesn't make you a specialist just as we we have other chartered institutes hr you can be a generalist you can be learning and development you can be employee relations so being a member of the institute doesn't mean you're actually a specialist in a particular area but then again you know a lot of the certifications are quite broad as well 
I guess so, to demonstrate specialism, you're looking at the more specialist certification. But this is where the endorsement of the network, your network, could be a leverage there, right? Could be could could add the value to say, yes, you are registered within this national body, this institute, and your recommendations within the institute are great. I don't know if that's practical. A lot of people in our industry are to some degree, on LinkedIn. They may use it every day. They may have a profile on there and not log in from one month to the next. How many people actively and effectively use recommendations on there? It's got that feature. People have recommendations. I've got some recommendations. None in the last decade, I don't think. Same here. There's a feature there. If we're not using that feature, would we really use it elsewhere but that feature is um, i could just do you a favor it's on an individual basis yeah equally i could say right i'm looking at this person ah they they know maurice as well i'll give maurice a call and say is this guy any, and you go yeah i met him once and i i connected with him but i haven't spoken to him since i don't know him so having those network connections i think enables you to to have those conversations to say look we have a a mutual contact in common. I can ask whether or not you would recommend this person. Yeah, okay. Uh, with, without you actually having ahead of time recommended them, I can ask you on on the spot. So I don't I don't think you necessarily have to have that within that uh, environment of LinkedIn. You know, you can you can just use the network features and say, well, I'm actually going to go and ask for a recommendation. Yeah, but then you may run into a situation where a person says. Uh, I, I, I don't know, uh, let me reach out to him if he f- thinks it's okay or she thinks it's okay that I am in touch with you about this because I don't know you. Yeah, he applied for a job. No, you're you're just fishing. You're just trying to get some information <laughs> here. So, sure. It's, it's, no, you, you, you reach out to people you do know. And yeah, right. if it's... But if any recruiter just contacts you and says, hey, tell me something about Maurice. Is he a nice guy? Uh, is he... Uh, would you respond just to a recruiter? Out of the blue, without me saying to you, hey, Martin, uh, somebody's going to reach out to you because they have questions. Ah, tough one. I'm connected to quite a few recruiters. Some of them I've spoken to a fair bit. Some of them very little. If it was somebody I, I actually knew reasonably well, then maybe. Uh, yeah, I'll take your point. Or would I reach out to you and go, hey, this guy wants to know about you? And therefore, I think if you have such a national body, basically, then you, you have already established that knowledge either in in paper or system. Um, and it's it is from a closed network. And if you have if you have recorded something about me, then they can just reach out. And of course, I have given my consent that this is somebody can request to see this information of course and if it fails and i just suck at the job then they'll look at you yeah it's a tough one and obviously you've you'd have to set up this body and then you'd have to well there's that who's going to pay for this is that then the but also that needs to be trusted you've got to earn that trust that you are actually a community of good people but also how are you actually demonstrating that you're doing what you can to ensure that you don't have any prejudicial barriers to entry. If people are good and they conduct themselves well, they can get it. You know, there's not a financial barriers. There's not any 
old school barriers of it's kind of hard when you when you get the oh well you've got to have you know you've got to be you've got to be nominated by some senior members and this is why i don't know any i i'm good at what i do i'm a reputable person but i don't know anybody who's a who's a fellow so i can't get in and i guess a lot of these things you know they have student memberships associate memberships that are a lower level so you can you can get in with a lower bar to entry and then and then work your way up to you know full member or fellow or whatever they call it but you've got to, you've got to look at how uh closed a community is that's not what you want you don't want you've got to be in with the with the inset to to get in and if if you're not then you don't get in yeah there's that indeed what if i would need i'm in need of a, a good project manager how do i know it's a good project manager there's no certified body on top of all kinds of project managers i have to look into my network where people already have a proven record or if not then they're not they don't belong to the network they're on the blacklist (laughs) but are we not already doing that you're not already think oh well i've worked with these people in the past maybe i'll see if they're available or i'll ask somebody else in my team if they can but what if recommend somebody what, what if the I people mean, in your network aren't available and you need somebody from outside and it's costing you a lot of money uh time to invest in money because well you have a project that needs to go live you need a person or it's just for daily operations yeah then maybe you maybe you do fall back on on certifications you go i need a a prince 2 certified project manager Let's go out to the market and put that as a requirement. And buy a certified project. Yeah, okay. So we're back to the certifications again. And who do they serve? Obviously, they're a, uh, in, in most cases at least, they're a, a revenue generator for some some body or company or other who's administering that, that certification. They're generating money from it, so it's, it's serving them in that sense. I guess you can say it's serving the, the candidate if... It puts them ahead in the race when they're applying for roles that they've got this badge and that maybe gets them past you know, a certain cull of applicants. Maybe it's your CV doesn't get you a job and a certification on your CV, which is just part of your CV, doesn't get you a job uh, in most cases. What it does get you maybe, the way I'd think of it, is it gets you an interview and to a degree it, it frames that interview. It, it sets some fence posts within that interview but it doesn't get you the job you've still got to do the interview you've still got to answer the questions demonstrate knowledge competence whatever in that interview so it's the certification just getting you to that interview and maybe that maybe that is some value to the the candidate where's the value to the to the hiring manager the employer i'm not sure in 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 most cases of these exams that the certification demonstrates practitioner capability it doesn't demonstrate that you can do the job but i guess it it's one way of one way of cutting down your your selection pool you get 100 applicants how many of them have actually got this uh, well okay we've still got we've still got 50 left we'll cut those I, I just feel that you're going to lose some good candidates that way but if you still get a good candidate what's that costing you yeah you might be right there but when when a small company would like to hire somebody skilled there still could be a hundred people applying for the job there right so indeed that could be yeah to to narrow down the selection you look at the certificates you do an interview well you say you say the small ones i think what we're seeing in some markets at least is the large ones i've actually got they actually using ai to look over 
people's applications. Yeah. And it's not it's not just a case of um, putting in the right acronyms these days. And kind of takes me back to the days when uh, SEO was just putting buzzwords in white text on a white background and machine read it and it, you, you had the right words in there. <laughs> so you got you got up the ranks. Similar sort of thing, with, I guess, with CVs and maybe in the in the marks 0.1 of these things, you could say, I do not have CISP. And it goes, oh, you mentioned CISP. That must be yep. good. Well, I, I honestly thought about uh, resigning for my CISP and then just mention ex-CISP because the AI would still see CISP. <laughs> okay, again, not, not bashing no, CISP. No, 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 no. What does it mean to say that you're a CISP versus an ex-CISP? So you passed your CISP. Let's not get into the paying to maintain it. I guess they've got to review your CPE. But you've done your CPE. Is, does that actually... It doesn't mean you would pass a CISP again that you've got your CPE. So is having a CISP that you've had for 10 years more valuable than I had a CISP and I let it lapse? Where's the value? I don't know because I am sure indeed, like you're saying, if, if you would force me to sit for my CISP tomorrow or today or, or next week, I'd fail. I excelled in... A lot of, uh, well, a lot of people would fail their driving test. Oh, there, yes, absolutely, it. absolutely. And we let them drive around, so... Because I'm good in, in some domains, but not all domains. I can't be good in everything. Nobody. Maybe a few. And, of course, therefore, there is... There are the... the, the Concentrations. Agreed. But yeah. I was thinking the same there. And not I don't specifically... often see people asking for the, for the CISP concentrations. Run that again, please. I said I don't often see people in job adverts actually asking for those, I think, the concentrations on No, there. indeed. No, indeed. It's, it's mainly CISP what people ask. Or, or, or it's, it's indeed the, the, the foundation, the, the basic. But this is really what got me thinking months ago. What's the difference of being an ex-CISP or maintaining CISP when it comes to, like you were saying, passing the exam back then... Yeah, in both cases, you've proved you could, on one day, in in the past, pass that exam. In the case of that one, you had to have had, to get the full certification, you had to have had some experience, you had to have... I think you need supporters as well, right, for a CISP. You need two, yes. two CISPs to actually two endorsers. Uh, endorse you. Yeah. yeah. So at some point in the past, you had had the full package. So So basically, indeed... Then I had the full package, I certified, and I'm still working in the industry, getting other certificates, uh, getting new engagements, new jobs, new... My network still considers me to be okay enough uh, to be hired. Does that lean on the fact that I'm reaching my CPEs and paying my AMFs? And it's not bashing IC Square Assist. This is for any yeah. other certificate. Yeah. Right. If I if I certified for uh, if I certified for uh, ethical hacker, yep. And I'm working as a ethical hacker, so I can I can I can let that certificate expire. I can just stop. I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you've just got to look at some of the. I mean, it, it it's hard at that field you mentioned. Uh, you know, ethical hacking is I think is is quite a within the industry is quite a fast moving field. Yep. You know, new technologies, new classes of vulnerability. Yep. Some of the XML type vulnerabilities didn't really exist and, and are now, you know, firmly in the in the OWASP top ten. Getting those those right questions, those right syllabus areas is hard to keep up. But yeah, you, you could very easily be in the position where you you had the the requisite skills, but hey, the landscape's moved. Yep. Yep. 
Uh, as long, uh, yeah, we're, we're we're not we're not all using uh, you know Sun workstations now. We're we're in the cloud and different technologies, different types of exploitation, and that's where something like you know, much as I think the, the there's problems with the exams, that, you know, the Quest exams that you have to you have to reset them, and I think there is certainly still some value of saying I have this certification, but it's lapsed. You know, somebody in the know will go right. Well, when did you take it? Okay, you took it four years ago, so it lapsed a year ago. I, I'll, I'll give you yay much credit if you'd passed the exam last week. But even even within that within that three years, it's just like well, it could arguably well you you took it. It's coming up to expire next week. You haven't taken it recently, versus somebody who has. And that that one's a really interesting one in that the you have to sign an NDA to take the exam, so you can't tell anyone what was on the exam. It's going to vary, you know. In certain other fields, maybe it's going to age less. But then something something could happen, and actually, it's going to be well that overnight almost that that exams not the the cutting edge it was. It's not as relevant as it was. All of a sudden, we have I don't know viable commercial quantum computing. Maybe that that exam that you had that went into configuring a lot of crypto products and infrastructure is. All of a sudden, out of the water because now you've got to do everything differently. How how do you maintain that? So I, th- I think we need to recognise that continuing development, continuous development, even is important in our industry. And how do we mark that rather than point in time? You know, you were capable at this time to whatever standard, as we said, with the, the practitioner versus sort of knowledge based uh, certifications as well. So there's the uh, continuous educational aspect, but there's also the continuous development aspect there. Prove that you grow along, right? You, you develop yourselves along with the industry as it develops there. Well, that's quite some questions for our uh, listeners here. Do you think that there would be a need for a national or international body on a group of certifications or an aspect of the industry like architecture or network security or something would there be a need for a specification of continuing educational but also development skills and you had a question how can our certification bodies and what are they doing to ensure that we're not restricting diversity within the field Thank you for listening. We hope you found it interesting. We'd really appreciate your views on certifications in our industry, who they serve, what value they provide, and what other routes there are to demonstrating knowledge, skills, and competencies. Of course, in the limited time we have and our own experience, there will be many aspects we've not covered, so let us know about those too. If you have the time, we'd appreciate a review or rating and welcome feedback on what you like and what we could add or do differently to improve this podcast. 